Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Talking Transports podcast. I'm your host, Lee Klaskow, Senior Freight Transportation and Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, which is Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have Andrew Boyle as our first guest on the podcast. Andrew wears many hats as co-president of Boyle Transportation and the vice chairman of the American Trucking Associations, or as most people know it as ATA. Boyle Transportation is a subsidiary of Andlauer Healthcare Group, which is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker AND on the terminal. Boyle Transportation is a trucking company that specializes on the biotech pharmaceutical industries as well as government and defense sectors. For those that don't know ATA, it's the largest trucking trade association in North America. Its members span less than truckload and truckload markets, which serve all sectors of the economy. Andrew earned an MBA from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management and got his undergraduate degree at Bowdoin College, where his academic performance was undistinguished and his athletic career was underwhelming. At least that's according to his official bio. So that's, that, that's not me talking. That's, uh, that's, that's Andrew talking. So... Andrew, welcome to Talking Transport. Great to be with you, Lee, and it's uh, particularly since it's the inaugural one. Um, you know, I've enjoyed a lot of your content over the years, and it's it's fun to talk directly with you. Yeah, no, it's been great, uh, great to get to know you over the years. Um, and you know, I learned something else in your bio, um, and I guess your the listeners here on the podcast might be a little disappointed because we're just using audio. But according to the, your bio, you are a three-time winner of KGC's fourth Best Looking Man Award. Is that true? Yes, and you know I consider this, aside from my family, my greatest achievement in life, Lee. So I go on a guys' trip with about fifteen or twenty guys each year. We play golf, and then uh, typically uh, the hostess of a restaurant or some other distinguished uh, guests come in and evaluate who is the fourth best-looking man. 
in the group because three are just one was a child model one has a latin thing going on tall dark and handsome another guy's just obscenely good looking so they're disqualified and then you know the judge gets to choose from among the remaining pool and as a three-time winner you know clearly there's a, <laughs> a pattern there um but uh unfortunately my, my wife does not recognize it uh as a third-party validation whatsoever <laughs> Well, oh, I guess I'd hate to see the fifth best-looking guy. Um, <laughs> so let, let's turn our attention to transportation, because that's why we're all here. H- how did you get your, your start in the trucking industry? Well, as you know, uh, one of the many neat things about our industry is that it, they, m- many of the stories and many of the companies start from very humble beginnings. And uh, my oldest brother, Mark, is my pr- partner and co-president. Our, our parents... Uh, were hustlers, did, you know, did not finish college. Uh, my, our old man was in the army, then the state police, and then was selling for another, uh, with, was selling for an LTL company, kind of late 60s, early 70s, and then all of a sudden uh, saw an opportunity that his company did not want to pursue. So then, as you know, at the time, the uh, industry uh, operating authorities for truck lines was regulated, so it was akin to a taxi medallion. So he bought his operating authority off for somebody in the classifieds in 1971 and kind of grew very gradually, locally, regionally. Um, and we, for many years, and Mark and I grew up working here in many different capacities, worked here after college for several years. We each went to graduate school, worked elsewhere. I was an investment banker for a, a period of time, and then about... 20 years ago, we returned and bought our folks out over time, uh, and they accelerated out of the parking lot. Uh, so uh, it, it's really what what it really is inspiring is in my role with ATA. So I'm slated in about a month's time to become uh, chairman after my great friend Dan Van Alstein finishes his term. Is you learn that this story is told thousands and thousands of times around the country from hustlers, true entrepreneurs, and then ultimately kind of to become a more professional organization. Yeah, no, it's great stories. Even the, the large publicly traded companies, they all started one person in one truck. Uh, so it's uh, you know a great story to see your, your family's success uh, in the industry. You know, uh, how would you describe the current state of the trucking industry in, in North America? from your perspective, and, and I understand because the industries that you serve, you might be a little less volatile than someone that's running, for, running uh, you know, retail routes. Sure, yeah, yeah, so the, not specific to, to our company, but the macro uh, environment, uh, certainly we had extraordinary demand in tight inventories at the same time for the last couple of years, which is a kind of a recipe for extraordinary transportation and logistics uh, demand. So that has abated and there's kind of a little bit of a whipsaw so general freight environment has has been muted and kind of down a fair bit this year um and we're getting back to kind of a a more normalized environment yeah uh you know it's uh you know one of the uh the large publicly traded trucking companies jb hunt at a recent morgan stanley conference uh, you know, Shelley Simpson mentioned uh, that they felt that the restocking uh, cycle has, or, or destocking, I should say, cycle has kind of come to a, a conclusion, which obviously would be a, a great thing for, for trucking demand going into peak. Um, you know, would you talk to either members at the ATA or, you know, your own customers? And again, you're, you're in a more defensive environment. 
Um, are, are, are they talking? How are they talking about peak season this year? Sure. Um, well, I wouldn't even say specific to peak season, but when you have the long view, for, for those folks who just got into this uh, the market in the last few years, then they have a distorted uh, kind of vision perhaps, or distorted perspective. But when you have the long view and have kind of been through a few different cycles, you understand that you have to take the opportunity when demand falls a little bit to maybe improve, improve processes, invest in te technology, uh, improve training, that sort of stuff, get better uh, and take the opportunity to get better. And also with respect to customer relationships, the way we approach things at our company, whether um, when we're hiring people, we want a long-term, mutually beneficial relationship. When we do business with vendors, we say to them, we want a long-term, mutually beneficial relationship. There's investment on both sides. And finally, with clients and customers, we approach them with, the, with kind of the same theme. We're looking for a long-term, mutually beneficial relationship. So we're investing, we're deploying, in many cases, millions of dollars of capital equipment for a particular customer, we're employing highly skilled professional people, uh, and we're investing in the technology, in our case, you know, the proprietary software that we develop specific for the clients. Um, so when you have that kind of mutual respect for the long term, you're willing to invest, the, the client sees that you're investing for their benefit, and you have that kind of fair and reasonable pricing relationship over time. However, there are participants in the market, whether they're owners of cargo shippers, could be third-party intermediaries, um, who seek to kind of, when there's different points in the cycle, they seek to extract their pound of flesh and treat it more as a transaction. And what my peers and friends say is, um, you know, in the industry, if they, in the same with us, when we get that message from the client or customer, that they are shifting toward a transactional um, environment or approach, well, then you're going to have this approach from us that we're designating you as a transaction customer, not a relationship customer. And that means, yeah, you want your pound of flesh now? Well, we're going to do it at right. the, the other point in the cycle. And we, at our co company, we try to stay away from that. We're, you know... That's too volatile for both parties. I can't imagine being a purchase, a, you know, kind of a, a purchaser of transportation, having to deal with like 20% volatility year to year. Presumably, this kind of 3%, 5% fair and reasonable increase over time is a better approach. Yeah, no, I mean, the uh, folks that are operating in the spot truckload market right now are, you know, feeling a lot of pain uh, because of, you know, that's that's the market that they're that their bread and butter is in. You know, it's great when conditions are tight, but, you know, in loose conditions like we are today, and a lot of them, you know, have higher costs because they bought their equipment, you know, at the peak uh, during the pandemic, you know, those, those, those folks probably won't be able to last very long uh, in, in, in the spot market, which unfortunately, you know, needs to happen to get capacity out uh, to, you know, provide support for spot rates. And, you know, that obviously will Will help uh, contractual rates, which are you know down uh, you know low double digits uh, uh, today. You know when you're looking in your crystal ball, uh, you know where, where do you see trucking a year from now, whether it's a demand side or a capacity side? 
Well, I think you're right. This kind of combination of folks who are have high base uh, cost basis for equipment, maybe in the secondary market. Those of us who are not in the secondary market, yes, we've incurred a lot of price increases, but we're kind of used to that over time. Whereas uh, kind of uh, individuals or small fleets who who came in when uh, there was extraordinary demand, yeah, their cost basis is high. Um, and then, yes, yeah, spot market reliance and that uh, decline is difficult. And then you couple that with, uh, with fuel prices. So energy costs are, are up dramatically, particularly diesel over the summer. So that kind of stew is going to make it very difficult for many market participants. Um, so, so that's you know not something I, I yeah. we wish upon anybody, but it is we, many of us have seen a movie like that before. Sure, sure, and you know, given given the loose capacity that's out there in the trucking spot market, and you know how that's uh, kind of bleeding into the contractual market uh, fr from a business owner, and, and maybe even from your perspective as you know your role at the ATA. Um, where do you guys see the driver shortage that we hear so much about? Um, you know, is that is that still actually an issue, or is it really easy to hire people right now? No, I, I would never say it. It's definitely not easy. Has it abated? You know, gradually from a year or so ago. Yeah, that that's fair to say. Uh, I mean, as you know, our, our friend at the uh, the ATA Economics Department has. Uh, did lower the number that we're identifying as the shortage in, um, earlier this year. However, you have to look at um, a few th factors, and one is what's the average age? So the average age of a professional truck driver now is kind of mid to late 40s, and the new entrants are also also skew older. So I'm not. I don't think it's. Uh, I don't believe in kind of using. FMCSA registrations as a proxy for capacity. As you know, this kind of dynamic of requiring, you know, folks who uh, had historically run under the authority of a carrier, now with the kind of arm's length transaction that's required um, by a lot of carriers to kind of comply with classification of workers, more and more independent contractors have had to obtain their own authority. Right, so that's kind of not a good proxy in my opinion and how that pie is divided is really what that kind of shows so regardless we need to attract and retain people who are in a younger demographic because of the number of folks who are retiring in the you know coming five to ten years and this is not a, a problem that's unique to the u.s right so every, nearly every major economy is reporting a um, a lot of job openings for professional truck drivers. We share that with the IRU, the International Road Union, which is kind of like an international version of ATA. So how do you do that, I guess, would maybe be the next kind of uh, discussion point. And uh, the young people, you know, the, the last couple decades when there was this emphasis on cents per mile. How do you attract a professional or not so professional truck driver with cents per mile? And younger people kind of don't digest that, right? <laughs> you can't pay the rent with miles, right? right? You you talk, you pay the rent and your bills with money. And then um, what we do at our company that we adopted to probably 20 plus years ago is this kind of notion that you're going to have clarity 
of your guaranteed earnings when you're away from home. Once you're dispatched away from home, you're on kind of effectively a salary where you're getting compensated for your time, not just your productivity. And then you have kind of a visibility as to what your schedule's going to be. So some folks go out for five days, they get two days off. Some folks go for three or four weeks, get a week off. But the, the whole time they have clarity on that schedule and for the earnings. So I, it's our experience that younger folks kind of that resonates with them that that's more appealing. Hey, I can live, I can plan my life. I can have a financial kind of goal or, or plan as well as my kind of a personal time plan. Uh, yeah, I think I, as an industry, this is kind of what the dynamic we're going to have to address. Right. And with hours of service and, you know, more regulations probably coming, you know, why, why do you think that your company is in a minority in terms of that's how you're paying, compensating your drivers and most people are still doing it uh, by the mile? Well, it's a free market and uh, I, I, I do know that more and more fleets have adopted some form or component of the compensation structure for professional drivers that has a guarantee to it. Um, but yes, we're we're in the minority for sure. As you know, there's this kind of disconnect between being regulated by hours and time and many uh, kind of buyers of transportation services wanting to pay by the mile. And many fleets try to align their costs on that variable basis to kind of align with the, the payment structure or the pricing structure. So you in most industries, as you know, like with capital equipment and skilled labor, you bill on a time and materials basis. Right. right? So think about hiring a crane, whatever, landscaping equipment, so, you know, um, HVAC techs, you know, you have time and materials. And our capacity in trucking is largely in the form of time. You, you don't have control a lot of times on miles, whether you're the individual or the fleet. You're going through Chicago, you're going through Nashville, Atlanta, et cetera, Los Angeles. Uh, so you can, uh, many of us just have to have the discipline to ensure that the professional truck driver's time is being valued as well. And then if you have market participants, shippers or intermediaries who do not, there are many participants in the market, right? Who deliberately try to create a race to the bottom mm -hmm. and, and deliberately not try to value a truck driver's time, despite some kind of, a you know, kind of lip service to the contrary and as carriers you have to have the kind of discipline to walk away from those right you know you, you mentioned the age of uh, the drivers I, I was uh, you know uh, you know I thought it was pretty incredible a couple maybe about a year and a half ago I went to uh, visited a driving school as an XBO driving school and the average age of the students there were in their late 30s, early 40s, and it was their second or third careers, um, you know, trying trying to do something new, looking to become a professional truck driver. So, you know, the the age and the demographics is really going to be an issue uh, to to find, you know, a good pool of qualified uh, drivers. And you know, one of the ways you can be unqualified is not passing drug tests. And given the you know, spread of uh, legal marijuana across the U.S. by a lot of states. You know, it's still illegal from a federal standpoint, therefore from a DOT standpoint. 
Um, you know, and, and testing is getting stricter. It seems a lot of the publicly traded companies are using hair follicle uh, tests, which uh, can you know detect um, drugs in someone's system uh, a lot longer and a lot more accurate. Um, are you guys using hair follicle testing? Where, where do you see the industry going as you know your role at the ATA? Yeah, so, no, so that, that's a great point. Uh, so with respect to hair follicle testing, it is orders of magnitude more accurate than urinalysis, right? So anywhere from eight to eleven times more accurate, um, which is first of all concerning that we're not that's a huge loophole, uh, and then it was. I think it's seven years ago now that the law enacted a, uh, a requirement for hair testing to be approved or uh, an approved means of, of testing professional truck drivers. So right. it has been um, in the, the quirky thing is that, you know, DOT in its subsidiaries kind of governed for the most part to have jurisdiction over interstate tra- transportation. However, the drug testing uh, standard has to come out of health and human services. So it's, this has been a great frustration um, of the industry because right now um, the, those carriers that do both urinalysis and they have to do both because the hair testing in and of itself doesn't qualify with the DOT. However, in that drug, te- pardon me, um, clearinghouse, the, the drug, t- drug and alcohol testing clearinghouse, right. you can only submit the urinalysis uh, results. So what we're asking in the interim, because they're getting pushback from organized labor quite a bit at the administration that, that does not actually want this to be enacted. That's the political uh, kind of gyration that they're going through right now, uh, slow, slow rolling it. But in the interim, what we ask is that the hair testing results at least be able to, because uh, many times the urinalysis does not uh, detect the drugs, but the hair follicle does. Those tests should at least be used in that clearinghouse so that somebody can't then go down the street and just jump in someone else's truck. Right. Um, even if it's not mandated to use a more accurate form of testing, at least allow those results to be submitted to the clearinghouse. Um, so we're getting closer and closer to that. Uh, and then with respect to the demographic, you know, you talked about the age. There are a couple of uh, neat things we have going on in kind of concert with the Department of Labor and other parties to get going this apprenticeship program because we lose a lot of kids to other trades. When they come out of high school at 18, you can't drive a truck interstate till they're 21. So right. we have a small scale with tons and tons of parameters uh, around it to just try to stimulate more uh, interest in driving in those 18 to 21-year-old categories uh, with a lot of stipulations. And then what, something that I find exciting that uh, some of our friends in the industry are starting in Dallas is this kind of pilot program where a lot of inner city youth do not have access to normal driving schools to get just a car driver's license. Uh, and this gentleman put up kind of a map of driving schools for driver's ed. So you and I and many other folks kind of grew up in high school. You had driver's education as an option at right. the at the high school. And now that most of the have been privatized and guess where they're all located, where the money is out in the suburbs. So inner city youth don't have access to this. So he has a pilot program going to help kids first get their driver's license and then ultimately um, create a pathway to getting a CDL. 
Well, that's uh, yeah, that that definitely uh, definitely could help. You know, it's interesting that uh, you know labor wouldn't want to create a, a safer environment for uh, their members and the the general driving public. Uh, but I guess that's a discussion for another time. And, I, and I'm very excited on my first podcast. I, we're, we're talking about urine, so uh, kudos to us. <laughs> um, you know, on 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 the topic of uh, regulations, not 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 urine. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of mandates out there trying to reduce pollution. Um, you know, whether it's new EPA uh, regulations that probably go into effect, I believe, in 2027 for uh, new trucks. Or what we're seeing, you know, uh, in the shipping industry or the rail industry, everyone wants to reduce their their carbon footprint. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk of electric electrification of trucks uh, to help clean the environment. You know, where where do you see the evolution of electric trucks in over the road trucking? Um, what, whether it's from your you know your perspective at uh, Boyle Transport or you know, uh, the, the point of view of, of, of your work at the ATA? Well, first of all, uh, what I want to make explicitly clear is that we, we truckers, as writ large, you know, we are heavily invested in reducing environmental impact. So we're the doers. We're the ones who kind of carry that load and have experienced different steps uh, with emission standard changes over the, particularly over the last 20 years. Um, so for and it's our work environment right so as somebody who grew up around diesel fumes you know the the reduction the 99 percent reduction from the 1988 standard is extraordinary and it, you know we've personally and directly uh, benefited from it now we we also however have to agree that reducing environmental impact is virtuous but dictating a particular technology, particular drivetrain, particular alternative fuel, without regard for kind of the life cycle of it, that is not so virtuous. And what I what I experienced in the in April when I testified at a Senate hearing is that there is a little bit uh, of dogma associated with uh, EVs being the panacea for all. So this is a massive industry. It is incredibly diverse with all different kind of operating um, segments. And there are, there are some applications for which EVs will be a great solution, provided the economics get to a rational point. But uh, two things happened in the spring with the US EPA. First, they said the, the 2027 standard that all parties had agreed to and had been established um, that all the engine manufacturers were gearing toward for 2027, EPA said, you know what, we're going to reopen that for the federal standard. We're going to reopen that and reconsider that. Here we are just a couple, you know, a few years away when the OEMs had already tooled up and engineered for it. We're going to reopen that and reconsider it. Okay. And then secondly, we're going to allow states to apply, to, to appeal to the federal government to have a waiver to establish their own emission standards. So those two things are, are completely completely contradict kind of this partnership with regulators, industry to achieve kind of achievable standards at an achievable time frame. Uh, and then qu quickly thereafter, as you know, California uh, dictated or that they're going to mandate effective this coming January the adoption of EVs by fleets 
in a so that come 2035 uh, internal combustion engines of all sorts will be outlawed in California okay so <laughs> uh, talking you know OEMs themselves and many other participants there, there are some in tests right now people might think that there are thousands of thousands and thousands of heavy-duty truck EVs in the road that is not the case even uh, Tesla which it makes great products and people love them and um, you know it's exciting some of the design they have they only have I think there are 18 or 20 on the road after seven years six six or seven years after the big PR event and that it, I'm not deriding them and it just goes to show however that it is very complicated and the the, the uh, infrastructure that you can leverage for passenger vehicles, people's homes, their workplace, etc., for charging that that uh, has there's no application of that. There's no kind of analog for that for commercial. And the demand of a each heavy duty truck BEV consumes like a couple hundred homes worth of electricity. So that that's the problem is that there's this you know wanting to reduce environmental impact is virtuous and we're on board with that and we can kind of share the evidence of the the path that has already been taken to get to a 99 percent reduction from where we were in the 80s um, but to dictate one particular uh, solution or one technology is crazy in our, our the american transportation research institute which does extraordinary work a year ago published their uh, analysis of the life cycle environmental impact right so looking at emissions is only one component so for example making a heavy uh, heavy duty truck class a truck bev is seven times worse for the environment than making an internal combustion engine diesel truck now over the life cycle but then the emissions you have the benefit of zero emissions so the total life cycle environmental impact of a BEV relative to internal combustion engine diesel is about a 30% benefit. However, you have to use more trucks to haul the, to do the same amount of work. <laughs> so you end up probably in many cases you're going to end up in net negative. And you're using more trucks uh, just because of the weight the weight issues of the batteries, right? So, so you got payload capacity, which is going to be reduced. Quite in some cases more substantially, you know, when you add more batteries for a longer uh, uh, kind of radius or what do you call it, a uh, range, right? If you want more range, you got to add more battery packs. Well, then that is going to make it heavier. So there's this kind of diminishing return you get. But and then furthermore, so you have you kind of lower uh, payload capacity, and then you have the operating characteristics where your downtime is going to be greater. Right, the analogy I made, or the kind of uh, comparison I made in the hearing was that right now we get two 100 gallon, we got like 200 gallon uh, capacity for fuel. Okay, you fuel in about 15 minutes, you get really, you, you could have up to, call it conservatively, a thousand to 1200 miles, 1200 mile range before fueling again. With the BEV, they're typically closer to a 200 mile range. In each time, in many cases, you're five, eight, you know, it could be anywhere from four to eight hours of charging. So just, yeah, in <laughs> uh, there are certain applications for which it's going to be great. Uh, but to have this kind of broad brush painted across the industry, there are other ways to get there. So my company, for example, we measure everything really closely. Just in the last uh, six years, we've reduced 
emissions by 50%. There are ways to do it um, without dictating a particular uh, technology. And you've reduced them. How, how did you reduce them? Is that you just talking about just buying more fuel efficient trucks or are you guys doing something outside of the equipment to help reduce those so, emissions? Yeah, so there's newer trucks are cleaner and safer. And then um, we have, you know, we can idle reduction technology, solar pa solar panels on the kind of on the hood, or probably not the hood, but kind of up on top of the cab uh, to power some of the hotel load. You have the aerodynamics, and then we measure everything, um, even the consumption here at our facilities. We have a solar powered headquarters, so there are ways to achieve these outcomes without necessarily dictating something that takes trillions in investment across the country. Um, you know, the if we convert the entire U.S. fleet of cars and trucks, we're going to need 40 to 50 percent more electricity. Yeah, I remember talking to a CEO of a trucking company, and they uh, they were all set to buy a fleet of electric trucks. Their, their the shipper was on board, uh, had the commitment, uh, but the the grid wasn't ready for it, and so that that's a it's a huge uh, a hurdle that the you know that the country has to, has to get over it. You know, we have to make significant investments into, you know, the, the, the electric grid, which is, uh, has been underinvested for decades. Right. In the, in the power, you know, the utilities and the power plant kind of manufacturers, I guess, built constructors will inform you that it takes a solid seven years to build a new one. Um, yeah. and so in the interim, what do we do? Right, because we, we do agree with this virtue that we can reduce environmental impact. And okay. so 20, 2010 was a big uh, jump in diesel emission standards. So this kind of pre-2010, post-2010, and from pre-2010 era to today, it's about an 83% reduction in emissions. So reusing round numbers in the country, the percentage of Class A trucks that are pre-2010 is about 50%. So about half the trucks on the road are pre-2010. And California is among the worst. So it has <laughs> it has like uh, one of the oldest fleets in the country. And then is, is that all the drayage operators going in and out of the ports? Well, a lot of those have been turned over, but just generally you're you're kind of uh, creating disincentives. So the w one way that we're trying to approach this is how do we take action now to reduce emissions in aggregate? And if half the trucks are pre-2010 and you get an 80 plus percent reduction, well, if we got, we're going to try to, re we want to repeal the federal excise tax, which is 12% levy on new vehicles that was initially installed to pay for World War One. I. I think we settled that debt by now. So if we're going to, if we want to update those new trucks, take, you know, with 80%, say, um, you know, 50% of 80, 40%, we could achieve a 40% reduction in emissions in aggregate if we just uh, facilitate the turnover of those old vehicles. So let's get on that instead of just kind of get, uh, getting, getting wedded to one particular uh, marketing uh, approach for one technology. Yeah, it's, it seems like uh, that uh, the electrification of... Uh, North America trucking is a, is a long way out. Something you know that I, I think also is, is a long way out that you know people like to talk about is uh, autonomous trucking. Um, you know that gets a lot of play, especially uh, in the press. Uh, you know, uh, what, what are your what are your feelings on autonomous trucking? 
Um, is it going to be here in our lifetime? And when I say autonomous trucking, I'm talking about level five. I'm not talking about just making the trucks safer, all the great technology that autonomous trucking does that makes a driver more safer when he, when he or she is operating uh, uh, the equipment. Yeah, so it's it's a massive industry and there's an addressable market for technology like that in, in certain applications. And that could be, you know, on uh, in on private property, obviously, in kind of yard applications and maybe some over the road in, in designated areas. Uh, I think so. There are a lot of smart people working on that. It is exciting. The removal of the human is kind of where the business case comes in. Um, and we're not we're not really in position to start planning on that being wide scale commercial adoption anytime uh, soon to the extent that we should relax our efforts to attract and retain people to work in the industry. Right. But uh, we're, you know, our company is being, uh, we're early adopters as, as it pertains to safety technologies. Um, so we love these t features and I have them even in my Jeep, you know, the uh, adaptive cruise, uh, lane avoid, lane collision, pardon me, lane departure. Um, Warning! All these uh, all these features that make it safer and less intimidating uh, for a new entrant to operate a tractor trailer. I don't necessarily think that uh, near-term, wide-scale commercial adoption of uh, AVs is is uh, something we're staring at right now. However, there are plenty of applications for which it'd be appropriate. Right. It right. sounds like we agree on a lot of things here. Um, you know, and I would imagine that, you know, when, if an industry is talking about or if, if prospective employees are hearing about the, uh, the getting rid of the driver, it's probably going to be even harder to retain and attract uh, younger drivers uh, into the industry uh, of fear of just like not having a job for a long. But, you know, it sounds like uh, any, any young person who wants to enter trucking, they, they, they probably have a, a, a pretty good career ahead of them for uh, decades decades to come that is interesting yeah that that notion that it's deterring younger people uh our our uh, kind of colleagues in europe the iru did perform a survey on that topic and that was a lot of the feedback they got from younger folks they have an aversion to entering something that they think is going to be you know akin to the uh elevator operator of a century ago yeah yeah but uh or what are they, a bowling pin? I think they used to, uh, I don't know what they used to call them, pin monkeys? I had a great uncle that was a pin monkey, actually. He, he, I think he told me he made like a penny a pin or something ridiculous. That's great. Uh, or maybe it was a half a penny a pin uh, in, the, in the 40s or 30s, I don't know. Anyway, um, well, on that note, you know, I think we're wrapping things up. Am I going to see you at the ATA conference in October? You bet. I have no choice. We'll see, we'll, we'll see you there. Yeah. No choice to see me or yeah. no choice to go. <laughs> yeah, but I guess I can choose to see you. No, but uh, I must must attend. And I, it's uh, as you know, it's really uh, kind of it's an energetic bunch. What, what, some of the great stories, as we know, you mentioned even the big public companies were started uh, kind of a humble beginning, and there's not you, you, there's no kind of pretentious folks in this industry, whether they're operating. Yeah. Uh, a carrier or a service provider to those or a vendor. Uh, so it's a great group of people. We have a lot of uh, hot button issues going on uh, on the regulatory front, legislative front, uh, and 
uh, so, so it's always uh, refuels me with energy um, engaging with peers there. Yeah, I, I, so I've been covering the space for it's it's coming up to twenty years now, and um, ATA the the uh, the MCE annual conference is one that I, I like to attend. Uh, you know, every year when I when I can, and uh, it's it's always full of uh, I, I, from a channel checks perspective. I, I get to interact with a lot of interesting people, a lot of entrepreneurs, um, you know, and people that you know that are in the C suite of companies that I cover. So it's a great opportunity. And, um, you know, there's no shortage of uh, big characters that, that, that attend that conference. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it in October and, and, and hopefully we can catch up for a coffee, um, you know, while we're there. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, with that, I think we're going to wrap things up. I just want to thank everyone for tuning in. And if you like the episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Uh, if you don't like the episode, uh, don't leave a review. I guess that's what we should say. <laughs> I'm kidding. We're always uh, open for feedback. But, uh, you know, we have uh, lined up a number of great guests for the podcast. Uh, check back to hear conversations with uh, C-suite executives from companies like Canadian National, CSX, Werner, RxO, GxO, Starbolt, PAM Transport, and Scorpio Tankers, just to name a few. So I'm very excited to be doing this. Uh, you can find me on Twitter or X or whatever they're calling it at Logistics Lee. Uh, drop me a line, say hello, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like. Uh, also, feel free to link uh, uh, to connect with me on uh, LinkedIn. And Andrew, can people reach out to you? Uh, where can they people find you if they sure, or if you want to be found? Yeah, yeah, I know. So, sometimes uh, not so much, but yeah, yeah. Where our our website is uh, boiltransport.com, B-O-Y-L-E, and our um, our parent companies, Andlauer Healthcare Group, and. Michael Andlauer is just closing on the purchase of the Ottawa Senators, so he's a uh, he loves he loves a few things. Loves uh, logistics. He loves uh, hockey and his family. So it's great for a great to see a guy who similarly kind of dropped out of college, was working on loading docks, created a great company that's very highly regarded in the pharma space, and employs a couple thousand people. And now as a beer league uh, hockey goalie, he gets to own an NHL team. Pretty cool story. That that is fantastic. Let's go to a game. Right on. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great uh, rest of your morning, day, or evening. Take care. Bye-bye. Be safe out there. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape. Looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.